How many of you have seen the show Stranger Things? Let me just see a show of hands. All right, quite a few, quite a few of you have seen the show Stranger Things. If you haven't, uh, it's a show about four 11 or 12-year-old boys who are living in the Midwest in the mid-1980s, which uh, naturally attracted me to the show right from the beginning because that's exactly who I was. And what is unique about this, their story is that they discover this world called the Upside Down. They discover this, uh, it's like a parallel universe. It's like a, par- a parallel world that is um, in some ways like ours and in some ways very different. It's another dimension, basically, that we can't see. And there's this uh, remote laboratory uh, where they, I don't, it's, it's kind of this mysterious laboratory in their town. It's heavily guarded. They're doing experiments all the time. And they somehow unlock a gate to the upside down, and they start sending people in. And um, the story of Stranger Things really begins when one of these four boys finds himself stuck in the upside down, and he doesn't know how to get out. And really, the whole show is about his friends trying to get him back. And it's really awesome. <laughs> um, now, in fact, let's, uh, there's, a, there's a picture from the show. This is one of the boys in his bathroom in the Upside Down. Okay, he's in his bathroom, but this is the Upside Down. It, it, the thing about the Upside Down is it's, it's parallel to our world, but it's darker, it's colder, and it's scarier than our world. There's like these faceless monsters that want to eat you. I know it sounds so cheesy, but it's so awesome. Now, why do I tell you about this? Why am I telling you about the Upside Down? Because Jesus unlocked the gate to an Upside Down world Himself and his upside down, that he the world he gave access, people access to is like a parallel universe or dimension that we can't see. That's what it is. We know it's there, but we can't see it. And what we discover about G, about God's upside down kingdom is that even though we can't see it, it's even more real than the world we live in right now. It's more real than this world. In the upside down and stranger things, no human can survive for very long. But in God's upside down. We're, we thrive. That's, that's the world we're made to live in. We're not made for this world that we find ourselves in right now. We're made for God's upside-down kingdom. And, and sometimes we feel stuck in this world, don't we? We were created for life in God's world because life in the upside-down Jesus talked about was full of God's presence and grace. And that's what we're made for. We're not made for this world. And really, Jesus' whole ministry was about how to help people live an upside-down kind of life in an upside-down world, a world which most people can't see. That's what Jesus talked about, the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God is. It's this parallel dimension that most people can't see, but it's the, it's the, it's the kingdom that we're made for. And the kingdom that is already here and is going to come in fullness one day. So, what is that world like? What is the world that Jesus talked about really like? Well, what if I told you today that everything you thought about how to relate to God is wrong? How would that make you feel? You know, that's basically what Jesus' message was. That's what he went around telling people. Everything you think you know about God is wrong. That's how people felt after they heard Jesus talk about God. They felt like, who is this God that Jesus is talking about? I don't know this God. That's not the God my parents taught me about. Jesus turned everything upside down when he talked about God, and that's what Jesus came to do. Not only did he come to die for our sins and to uh, seek and save the lost, but he came to show people what God is really like and to show people that this God that you think you knew is better than anything you've imagined. God is better than you thought he was. That's what Jesus' whole message was about. And following Jesus, here's just, here's just an example Following Jesus is not about meeting some ethical standard in life. It's not about obedience to some moral code. It's not about uh, being religious and practicing certain rituals. It's not about going to church every week and reading your Bible and praying and giving and all of those behaviors. While those are all good, that's not what it's about. I think if you ask the average person on the street, what is a Christian? They might say something like, uh, oh, a Christian, that's someone who goes to church and they pray and they believe in God and they try to do what's right. But let's, we got to be clear about this. None of those things gives you access to God. None of those things. You can do all of those things 
and still be outside of God's kingdom. The message of Jesus, and here's what we have to know. The message of Jesus Christ is much more about being than doing. Did you know that? You can't do your way into being. You can't try to be a Christian. You can't. It's impossible. You have to be something first before you can do anything. Your attitude always comes before your actions. Something has to happen at the deepest level of your being before anything can, can uh, happen at the surface. We have to be changed on in the inside before we can change anything on the outside. It's all about the heart. That's what Jesus said. That's what was different about Jesus' message, is that you're not a Christian because of where you come from or who your parents are or what you do or what you don't, what you don't do. You're a Christian because of who you are on the inside. Something has to happen. Some radical change has to happen. It's so radical, in fact, that Jesus described it as being born again. And that brings us to what are commonly called the Beatitudes. We're going to be going through, over the next bunch of weeks, we're going to be going through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And he begins his Sermon on the Mount by talking about the Beatitudes. He talks about being someone. And there's eight or nine of these, depending on how you read them, there's eight or nine attributes of a person who Jesus says is truly happy. It's basically Jesus' description of a Christian or his disciples. This is who they are. And they are the happiest people on earth, he says. They're blessed. That's what the word blessed means. It means, it means happy at the deepest level. Uh, and these are people who have found life with God to be the best life that there is. So we're going to read the first 12 verses of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today, or the first 11 verses and uh, this is how Jesus kicks off his teaching on the upside-down kingdom of God. Let's read, let's, uh, let's read this, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is what it says. Now when he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now those are the Beatitudes, and uh, we're going to start talking now about this upside-down kingdom that Jesus talked about. So here's the first thing that Jesus said about it. In God's kingdom, it's better to be poor than rich. That's upside-down. In our kingdom, we feel like it's better to be rich than poor, right? It's better, but in God's kingdom, it's better to be poor than, than rich. And Jesus, talked, he's not talking about material riches. He's talking about spiritual. He's talking in the spiritual realm, right? And there's two Greek words. The New Testament is actually translated into Greek. Jesus probably taught this in the Aramaic. This is translated uh, from Greek. It was written down in Greek, and now it's translated for us in English, which isn't that convenient but there's two words in the original Greek that are uh, translated poor. We only have one word for poor, really. and the Greek, they had two. One of the words is penes, which describes a man who has to work hard just to get by and can't afford any nice things. That's one level of poverty that was used in um, Jesus' day to describe poor people. In fact, most of us can relate to that kind of poverty. Most of us have been that kind of poor, Right? In our lives at some point. Maybe it was when you were in college or, you know, you were working hard just to make ends meet. That's one level of poverty. The other word used for poverty or poor is tochos, which describes a person who is utterly and totally destitute and poor and who has absolutely nothing. They're so poor that they have to beg just to survive. They can't even help themselves. That's how poor they are. And that's a, a level of poverty that probably none of us, maybe a few of us, have ever experienced. And that's the word that Jesus uses to describe poor in spirit. 
This describes a person who realizes they have nothing, absolutely nothing in themselves to give to God, to offer God, to say to God, God, look at this, look at this, isn't this great? We have nothing to boast in in God's presence, nothing. They know, this person knows in their heart that nothing inside their heart would make them right with God. They have no resources whatsoever to live the life that God expects them or calls them to live. They have no ability to do it at all. These are people who are aware of their own spiritual poverty or depravity, if you will. In fact, the, um, in that great hymn that we just finished singing a little few moments ago, Rock of Ages, that one verse says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. That's the song of the poor in spirit. That's what they sing. And we see examples of the poor in spirit all throughout the New Testament. But in the Gospels, many times over, the prodigal son, which we looked at back in September. It seems like so long ago now. The, and the prodigal son, the prodigal son comes home. He's got nothing. He's destitute. He's got ragged clothes. He was eating pig food. He's starving. He's on the verge of, of starvation. He comes back to his father's house because he has nowhere else to go. And he expects his father's going to punish him or just reject him or ignore him. He comes with nothing and he, cries, he begs his father for mercy. And the father welcomes him. He throws his arms around him. You know why? Because he was poor in spirit. The, the son came home and he admitted his need. And there was another son, you know, in that story who didn't need anything from the father, really. He wouldn't even go into the feast. Which one is welcomed into God's feast? The one who was poor in spirit. The prodigal, the one who'd wasted his life, wasted his inheritance. But God welcomed him and embraced him because he was poor in spirit. That's the message there. There's another parable Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector were back then. They were really despised by the Jews. They were considered to be wicked cheaters. The lowest of the low. And in the temple, one day, there's a Pharisee who is, you know, upright and blameless and religious and, you know, certainly pleasing, pleasing God with his life. And then there's this tax collector who's made, a, made a, a wreck of his life. They're both in the temple. The Pharisee prays to God and says, God, I thank you that I have, you know, that, I, that I'm such a good person and I go to church every week and I give to the poor and I make all these sacrifices and I thank you that I'm not like that guy. And the tax collector doesn't even, he can't even look up to heaven All he can do is beat his chest and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said the tax collector went home justified. Why? Because he's poor in spirit. There's another parable Jesus told in in, uh, Luke chapter 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is actually the only proper name that Jesus uses in any parable he ever told, as far as we know. There's There's a rich man who had everything and, and um, had an easy life, and outside of his gates, there was, an old, there was a beggar named Lazarus who had nothing. He was lame, he was poor, he begged, he had sores all over his body, stray dogs would come and lick his wounds every day. It sounds gross, it's disgusting. He's destitute, He's, he has nothing. And then they both die, and we're told that the rich man, Lazarus went to heaven, and the rich man went to hell. And while the rich man was in hell, he looked up to heaven and he begged that Lazarus could just dip his tongue in water, or dip, dip his finger in water and cool his tongue with it. Why? What's the difference? The rich, Lazarus was poor, poor in spirit. Only the poor in spirit have access to God's kingdom. This is the key to all the other Beatitudes, poverty in spirit. Understanding that we have nothing to give to God, nothing to bring to Him. That's the kind of person who is truly happy. So this is how I would summarize this. Happiness is coming to God with nothing. Happiness is coming to God with nothing. And, and when we do that, God says, the kingdom is yours. All of this is yours. 
The contrast, of course, is this. Misery, here's what misery is. If happiness is coming to God with nothing, misery is coming to God with all my talents, all my accomplishments, all my achievements, all my good deeds, and saying, look at me, God. Look at everything I've done for you. Now you bless me. That's, that's a great way to be miserable in life, trying to earn God's favor and earn God's acceptance. Let's look at the next thing that Jesus says, the next attitude. Blessed are those who mourn. Here's how, here's how we're going to describe it. In the upside down, it's better to mourn than laugh. It's better to mourn than laugh, Jesus says. He actually said that in Luke chapter 6 when he, uh, when, when he that's how Luke des- uh, describes this teaching. And this word for mourn literally means grieving the dead. So this is an intense kind of mourning, like losing a loved one. And this is describing people who mourn over their sin. That's what's happening. They hate, what they, they look at their life, they see sin in their life, and what sin has done to their life, and what sin has done to their relationships, what sin has done to their family, and they weep over it. They're crushed by it. They hate it. They hate what sin has done to them. Especially they hate what it's done to their relationship with God. Because they have no peace with God. Unless God does something about their condition. In John chapter 11, Jesus, uh, we're told that Jesus, the, the one Jesus loved, one of his best friends, his name was Lazarus. Not the, same, not the Lazarus from the other parable that we were talking about. This is a different Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. And he was very sick. And so Mary or Martha sent word to Jesus, please come, the one you love is sick. And he's on the verge of death. And Jesus got the message and he did nothing. He waited around for a couple days. I don't know what he did exactly during that time, I don't remember. But then eventually he, got, he made his way to the town where Lazarus was buried, and he showed up a couple days late because Lazarus died, and when Jesus showed up, the funeral was already going on. And Mary and Martha didn't appreciate that very much. They were disappointed in Jesus. Have you ever been disappointed in Jesus? (laughs) So have many other people. (laughs) Mary and Martha were disappointed in Jesus. They let him know, Jesus, where were you? If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus is like, okay. <laughs> he, sees, you know, he sees how upset they are. He sees his friend has died. He knows what's going to happen next. Maybe some of you know what happened next. And Jesus, we're told, weeps. Jesus wept. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. That's when he did it. That's when his best friend died. Jesus knew That in a few moments, he was going to bring him back from the dead. (laughs) And yet he enters into their pain in that moment. He is, Jesus hates what sin has done to his best friend. Death is the curse of sin. Just to remind you, death is the, there's nothing good about death. Death is the curse of sin. And it's a curse that's hanging over all of our heads. And some of you know the curse of death very intimately and you hate it and you should hate it and it should cause you to mourn because death happens because of sin that's the problem right and so jesus enters into their pain before he undoes the curse he enters into their pain now when you have pain when you have pain that persists for many days or weeks you If you're smart, you go to a doctor. And the doctor's job is to find the cause of the pain and treat the cause, not just the symptoms, right, but the cause. Unfortunately, there's some doctors that only are interested in treating the pain or the symptoms. And then the pain goes away and you just go on living and, you know, doing your life. But most often, you know, if you you just treat the symptom, you don't treat the cause, the symptom might go away, but the cause is still there. Maybe there's an underlying disease. Maybe there's something there that's getting worse, and you're just ignorant to it because the symptoms are going, have gone away. And God created our bodies that way. He gives us pain and you know, receptors and, and nerves to, to tell us when something's wrong with our bodies, right? 
And pain relievers and pain meds, they only mask the cause. That's what they do. They mask the cause. And this is kind of how the world works, right? When you're in pain, you just want relief. When you experience some kind of deep spiritual or emotional pain, you, we, all we want to do is we want to we mask it. We want to deal with the symptoms. And so we look for relief. We run to things that will numb the pain. That's what we do in life. We just run to things that will numb the pain. I've done it many times. You have too. It might be work. You decide to throw yourself into your work. And work is a good thing, right? But work is not a good thing when all you're doing is using work to mask pain in your life. Or to numb pain in your life. If, if you've gone through a divorce, you know, you know pain maybe better than anyone else. Or, or better than most. Divorce is one of the most horrible things anyone can go through. And the pain is very real. And the temptation when you're going through a divorce is to... Look for ways to numb the pain. Maybe I can find someone else who will help me forget about all this pain I just went through or the pain I'm going through rather than waiting on God or, or doing, or, or you know, waiting for God's comfort. That's one of the hardest things there is to do. Some people run to alcohol. Some people use drugs. Some people use pornography. All of those, all of those things all they do is mask the pain. They, not, they don't deal with the cause. They don't change anything about you. They only make your condition worse. So here's what this means. Happiness is embracing the pain in my life. Does that make sense to you? It, it sounds upside down, doesn't it? But that's what Jesus is saying. Happiness is embracing the pain in your life and waiting for God to comfort you. And Jesus says if you will embrace the pain in your life, and stop running to other things to, to, to numb the pain, you will be comforted by a supernatural comfort. That's the promise. Misery, on the other hand, is escaping from pain or soothing my pain with things other than God. That always leads to misery and emptiness. Let's look at the third thing that Jesus says about these upside-down people in this upside-down kingdom. He says, blessed are the meek. In the upside-down, it's better to take a low position than a high one. That's what Jesus is saying. It's better to take a low position than a high one. Meek, sometimes we hear the word meek and we think about the word weak. We think it's someone who's just a pushover. Someone who just lays down and, and doesn't stand up for themselves, you know, but that is not at all what it means. This is somebody who is gentle, hum humble, lowly, and strong. Meekness is really someone who is, who, this is strength under control. This word is used often to describe, in the Greek, to describe an, uh, a powerful animal that's been tamed. And that's the word that Jesus use, uses. So when I see myself for who I truly am, Someone who's desperately in need of God's grace and mercy, a wretched sinner, <laughs> I'm in a position to be gentle and humble and patient with others. I can see others as more significant than myself. That's what it means to be meek. The Apostle Peter all right, is a good example of this. He didn't start out with meekness. He started out being very strong and self-confident. He was a zealot. He was passionate. He was fervent. He was confident. He knew who he was. He knew what he wanted. He asserted himself. He inserted himself to Jesus many times and got put it back in his place, didn't he? In fact, at the, at the end of Jesus' life, Jesus and Peter were in a garden with some other disciples. And something happens I'd never saw before until just recently. This band of soldiers comes in, at least a hundred Roman soldiers come in, and they're looking for Jesus. They got swords and clubs and spears and everything, and there's just a handful of disciples. Peter happens to have a sword by his side, because that's who Peter was. He was, Peter had a concealed carry, you know. That's, he was packing all the time. That's just who Peter was. Even in the garden with Jesus, he's like, I'm not leaving my sword at home. So he's in the garden late in the middle of the night. And in come these soldiers. And Peter's probably like, yes, I get to use my sword tonight. He whips out his sword. There's a hundred soldiers around. He cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. And Jesus says, what are you doing? 
this is not how my kingdom works. And he heals the guy's ear. He picks it up off the ground and he puts it back. And he's, P, Jesus says to Peter, whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. Jesus lived a different kind of life. Jesus ushered in a different kind of kingdom. You know what Jesus did in the garden when all the soldiers showed up? He said to them, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, here I am. And every single soldier hit the ground in fear and trembling. That's power under control. That's what meekness does. That's a little bit of Jesus' glory came out there. I don't know how it happened or what, but they saw Jesus' glory in that moment through gentleness, through meekness. And it was overwhelming to them. And they were powerless against it. And you know what Jesus says about, the, about meek people? They will inherit the earth. It's not the strong people. It's not the people who take things by force. It's the meek who will inherit the earth. So happiness is giving God control over my life and circumstances. When I want to take charge and take control and, and just, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and get things done. That's misery. That will lead to misery. That Doing whatever I want, taking control of my life from God will only lead to misery. Happiness is giving God control over my life and circumstances. The next thing that Jesus says is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And here's how I would say, here's how I would describe it. In the upside down, it's better to be right than happy. It's better to be right than happy. Righteousness here means a couple things. It means, at the very least, it means to be right with God. Someone who longs to be right with God. They, they want to be right with God. They want God to look at them and say, you're, you're okay, you're with me. That's what they want, more than anything else. And they also want to do what's right. So there's a, there's a uh, positional aspect to this, and there's also a practical aspect to it. And notice the text doesn't say, Happy are those who hunger, or blessed are those who hunger and thirst after blessedness. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, happy are those who pursue happiness. That's not, that's not the truth. The happiest people on earth are not those who make happiness the goal of their life. They make righteousness the goal of their life, according to Jesus. And this hunger and thirst described here are intense, like a person who is starving or dying of thirst. So the question we have to ask ourselves is how badly do we want to be righteous? How badly do we want to be right with God? How intensely do you want to be completely at peace with God? Maybe one thing we could ask is, is what is the thing, what is the one thing you can't get enough of in your life? What is the one thing that if you had it, your life would be complete? What is that thing? What is the thing that dominates your thinking? That's what you hunger and thirst after. And Jesus is saying, the person who is the happiest person is the one who wants righteousness more than anything else. In the news, there was a, uh, recently there was a, a New York cab driver. This actually happened. He found a purse in his back seat. Had $21,000 of cash and jewelry in it that a woman had left who he was driving around that day. So he, he, you know, he went through the purse, he found all the stuff, and he's like, whoa. And then he found, he found her identification and her address. And uh, some of you think you know what he did, right? He went, he drove 50 miles away to, to Long Island. And he found her house, and she wasn't there. So he left a note on the door, and the note said, I have your purse, call me, cab driver in New York City. So she called him a little later, and she said, do you really have my purse? How can I get it? And he said, I'll bring it to you. I'll drive it back out. He drove back out the 50 miles. He gives her the purse with everything in it. And she naturally, you know, she wanted to thank him. She said, How can, I, can I give you some money? Can I reward you in some way? And he said to her, I might be needy, but I'm not greedy. I don't need any reward. <laughs> Can you imagine a world 
full of people like that. It's coming. It's coming. In fact, Jesus said, those people are here already. It's us. It's supposed to be us. The one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness sees sin in themselves. And they hate it so much, they want to cut it off at the root. And they're willing to do whatever it takes to get rid of it. They, they, they want righteousness more than anything. They want to be right with God. So happiness is putting righteousness before happiness. Happiness is putting righteousness before happiness. Misery, I bet you can't figure this out. Misery is putting, wait, did I say that right? Now I'm getting confused. Yeah, happiness is putting righteousness before happiness. Ministry is put, <laughs> misery, thank you, is putting happiness before righteousness. The next thing Jesus said is, blessed are the merciful. Merciful people are people who have compassion for those in need. And I'm going to say it this way, and please follow, this is important. This is, this is the best way I know how to describe this. In the upside down, it's better to spend yourself on people who don't deserve your help than to ignore the needs of people who are getting what they deserve. Did you hear that? We naturally ignore the needs of people who are getting what they deserve. Why? Because they're getting what they deserve. Why would we interfere with that? But in God's kingdom, it doesn't work that way. There's mercy. There are people who are different, who actually show mercy to people who are getting what they deserve and want to help them in their time of need and suffering. Their burdens become your burdens. And let me put it this way. We're, we're a church. We're trying to help people. We want to love people and bless people. We want to we leave a mark in our community. How are we going to do that? Are we going to serve and bless local elementary school kids who come from low-income households? Or are we going to do that to prisoners? I mean, that's kind of how you could look at it, right? Who deserves it more? Well, prisoners are getting what they deserve. They've been convicted, you know, they've gone through the system. Most of them are getting exactly what they deserve, right? So why would we help them? Let me tell you, we should help both of them. Because that's what mercy does. We're not concerned about what they deserve because we know what we deserve and we know that we've received mercy from God. So we are willing to go out of our way to help people who are getting what they deserve, to relieve them in their suffering as they're enduring the consequences for their own sin. The best story to illustrate this is, is the Good Samaritan. Jesus told a story about a guy, there was a Jew who uh, was traveling through the mountains, he was overtaken by these robbers and thieves who beat him to the point of, he was near the point of death. He was half naked, lying in a ditch on the side of the road. A priest happened to, to go by. He sees the Jew. He goes to the other side, passes him by. Then a Levite, a super spiritual person, does the same thing, walks right on by. And then a Samaritan shows up who Jesus' listeners would have considered a half-breed someone who's not even worthy to go into the temple. And he shows up, he sees this Jew who normally would be considered an enemy of his, and he goes to help him. And he bandages up his wounds, and he takes him into the city. He finds a place for him. He pays for him to stay there and to get treatment. He takes care of all of his needs at his own expense. And Jesus says, that's the person who's a, who is the best neighbor. That's the person who's blessed. Now you go do the same. Sinclair Ferguson said, Mercy relieves the consequences of sin in the lives of other people. That's the kind of mercy Jesus is talking about. We don't say, well, they're just getting what they deserve. Mercy steps in at our own expense and we take care of people. We care about people who've hurt us. That's what we're supposed to do. Someone hurts you and you suffer because someone else hurt you. A merciful person forgives. They understand that we've, under, we've received immeasurable mercy from God, so we're willing to forgive anybody, 
no matter what they've done to us. Maybe the next best word we have in English to describe this is empathy. Being able to kind of step into someone else's shoes and understand exactly what they're going through. That's what this is about. It's, it's not just forgiving a debt or feeling sorry for someone. This is the ability to see someone in need and to understand what they see, how they think, and, and how they feel. And here's the question, here's the key question that the person asks. What must it be like to be them? What must it be like to be them? That's the question that drives mercy. Do you know that, have you, how often do you ask that question? How often do you see someone who is, you know, getting what they deserve? Someone who, who is suffering, struggling, hurting. And, and, how, and, then, and then ask yourself, what must it be like to be them? The disciple of Jesus is always asking that question. So that we can identify with that person. And once we identify with that person, we can begin to carry their burden. That's what this is. I, uh, I go on ride-alongs periodically with uh, West Dallas police officers. And as part of my role as uh, one of the chaplains there. And very often we encounter interesting people. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> All kinds of interesting people out there in this city who are in trouble. Some of them literally can't even stand and I find myself to do that, to even be around those people, to be useful, to be a blessing, to have an impact in that role. I have to ask that question. I fi- I'm constantly asking that question. What must it be like to be them? I couldn't do that job without asking that question all the time. And that's the question that drove Jesus very often. There was a... <clears throat> A time when Jesus was exhausted, he, he didn't sleep, he was, he was just going, 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 healing people, teaching people, and he and his disciples just needed a break, so they got in a boat and they, they crossed the lake, and they got to the other side, and sure enough, there was a crowd that followed them over, and Jesus, I mean, physically, all Jesus wanted to do was sleep and rest and take a break, but he looked at the people, thousands of people, and he had compassion on them. And he began asking himself, what must it be like to be them? And then he taught them for hours and he fed them with nothing. He fed them. Because Jesus was a compassionate person. More compassionate than any of us could hope to be, right? That's who Jesus was. So happiness is showing compassion to people in need. And you will receive mercy from God when you do this. That's what he says. Jesus promised, you will receive mercy from God. Misery on the other hand, is ignoring the needs of others or condemning them or saying, you're just getting what you deserve. In the upside down, let's look at the next one. It is better to be who you are and let people down than be someone you're not and have more friends. It's better to be who you are and let people down than someone you're not and have more friends. That's what being pure in heart means. This is what Jesus said in Luke, uh, Luke chapter 11 Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And so Jesus is talking about pure in heart. Not pure on the outside, pure on the inside. It literally means unmixed. So when you and I see a person who is pure in heart, I'm seeing them for who they are. There's no hidden agenda. There's no secrets. There's no double-mindedness or double life. They are the most sincere people in the world. They don't wear a mask. They have nothing to hide. They don't pretend to be something they're not. Their life that they live in front of people is the same life they live behind closed doors. They are transparent. They can look you in the eye and they can say, I'm not going to do this because I don't need you to like me to be happy. That's the kind of people these are. In fact, if there was one attribute out of all of these that I want for my kids right now, it's this one. I want my kids to be able to look people in the eye and say, maybe not out loud, but to say to themselves, I don't need, to be, I don't need this person to like me to be happy, so I'm not going to do what they're doing. That's what this is about. It's about character. That's what this whole thing is about. This whole message is about being people of character. But it's not just character like, oh, he's a good person and trustworthy. This is a supernatural 
kind of person who's been changed in the innermost being. And because of that, they're pure in heart. They're the same person everywhere they go. They fear God more than they fear people. They don't fear people at all. They just fear God. They're not living to please people. They're living to please God. And in the end, God is going to expose the secrets of our hearts. That's what he's going to do. Everything we've ever thought or said or done will be uncovered and seen for what it is. And the one who's pure in heart has nothing to fear and nothing to hide. So happiness is an undivided heart. It's an undivided heart. And if you have an undivided heart, Jesus says, you will see God. Misery, of course, is having a divided heart. Someone with divided loyalties. Now we're going to look at one more today. That's it. We're going to save the the last one for next week. Where Jesus says this, Blessed are the peacemakers. So in the upside down, it's better to do the hard thing by seeking reconciliation than the easy thing by keeping a safe distance. And that's what we do, right? When we experience conflict in our lives and tension with other people and things are awkward and uncomfortable, we've hurt them or or offended them or they've hurt and offended us, we tend to just, you know, keep a safe distance because that's what's comfortable. That's what's easy. We don't want to make it any worse. But in, in the upside down kingdom, it doesn't work that way. There are people who strive for peace at all costs. They do whatever it takes to be reconciled. Jesus is saying that no one on earth is more happy than the person who's able to bring people together who once were miles apart. That's what reconciliation's about. Who can do that? Who has that power to reconcile enemies? This doesn't come naturally to us. This is a supernatural power, just like all of them. Have you ever seen two people who once were separated because of personal pain and sin and deceit, and they come back together in complete forgiveness and love. Have you ever seen that? I have a good friend who, um, his parents were divorced when he was in, uh, right around, I think in high school. He's in his late 20s now, and, um, and I remember his parents came to our church for many years, and, uh, or his mom did. His, his, his dad was another story, and... Um, there was just a lot of conflict and tension in the home. And um, the dad just didn't want to have anything to do with church. Well, he was kind of alienated from the family. There was no relationship between the, 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 his mom and dad for many, many years. His mom wasn't sure what to do. You know, how do I deal with this? I want to be faithful to my husband, but I don't know how to live this way. And uh, eventually she came to the point where she realized it was within her spiritual rights to divorce her husband and it was it was right i believe it was right and so she she divorced him it was very hard for the whole family they were divorced for many years just going you know doing their own thing living their own lives then god showed up and did something in this man's life i don't know exactly what it was but he changed his heart he completely changed his heart and put a burden on his heart for reconciliation so he began to reconcile with his children his four children one by one, you know, apologizing to them and meeting with them and really just getting to know them because he was alienated from them for many years. No relationship at all. And then he decided, I can't stop here. I need to reconcile with my ex-wife. So he called her up and started that process. And there's so much more I could share with you, but I want to tell you today, they got married last year. They got married again last year because of what God did in his heart. It's one of the most amazing stories of reconciliation I've ever heard. And that's because of God. There's nothing, we can't do that. How often have you heard stories like that? But it happens because God can take a man who has the hardest heart you've ever seen and he can melt it and he can make him a peacemaker. A peacemaker. He can make them all these things. He can make all of us all of these things through the power of the gospel. My daughter, my, my oldest daughter's on a basketball team. And, and just this last week, we were at a practice, and she got into a little bit of a scuffle with one of her teammates. Where it was really her teammate that was this, doing the scuffling. <laughs> she pushed my daughter I was angry. I don't know why. I don't know what happened. And we just kind of, the practice kept going. We couldn't, it wasn't, you know, the other coach didn't even see it. I just kind of watched it. Nothing happened. Nothing, it wasn't like a brawl or anything. It just kind of ended there. But then I was like, you know what? I can't, I can't let, leave this alone. So I went and talked to my daughter. I said, hey, I think you need to talk to her. What happened there? She's like, I don't know. She just pushed me. I, 
I'm like, why don't you talk to her? Why don't you ask her, is, is everything okay? Did I do something, you know? And she didn't want to do it. That's okay. I wasn't, didn't make her do it in that moment. But I haven't been able to stop thinking about it the last, like, four days. I can't, I feel like I can't totally rest until there's reconciliation. And I'm supposed to feel that way. And you're supposed to feel that way. And we could easily say, you know what? A couple teenage girls, drama happens all the time. Let's just, you know, let, leave it alone. But that's not how God's kingdom works. We don't leave it alone. We seek reconciliation as much as it depends on us because we're peacemakers. So happiness is dealing with conflict. Happiness is dealing with conflict. Misery is avoiding conflict. And I want you to listen to a verse about the greatest peacemaker ever from Colossians 1, 19 and 20. And this is what God says about Jesus. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That's Jesus, our peacemaker. That's what Jesus did. He gives us peace. He made peace between us and God when we were God's enemies. So, I just felt like I tried stuffing a whole week's worth of clothes and food into a very small backpack. And um, next week we're going to look at just one more of these, um, and then we'll go into the next couple of verses. But here's what I want to leave you with today. The upside-down kingdom that Jesus talked about, this world, this parallel universe, so to speak, is already here. It's for now. This is about us now. But at the same time, it's going to be revealed on the day, we're told, by New Testament writers. On that day, there's one day, the judgment day, the day of judgment, when, when all things are wrapped up. History comes to an end. The, the, the clouds, the sky will be you know, pulled back like a curtain, and everyone will see Jesus for who he truly is, and he will come down in power, and he will bring heaven with him. And heaven is going to crash into earth, as it were. We're not going up to heaven. That's not, that's not it. That's not how Jesus talked about it. Heaven's coming down to us. And Jesus is going to rule forever. My question for you is, will that be a good thing? Let, let, let's just, I mean, heaven, this is what this is, the Sermon on the Mount is. Heaven on earth now. That's who we are. God is showing, he's introducing heaven to people wherever we go. That's what kingdom people do. Wherever we go, we're giving people a glimpse of heaven, a taste of heaven by being this. That's what Jesus is saying, right? But someday heaven is going to crash into earth. It's, it's going to be full out, full blown, pure, you know, perfection and glory and peace and grace and mercy, unadulterated, unfiltered. Only light, no darkness. That's happening. It's going to happen one day. What if it happened tomorrow? Are you ready? Are you ready for this? That's my question. Are you ready for this? If you want to know if you're ready, think of it this way. Would, would you enjoy it? Let me, let's think about it like this. If you're someone who's bitter... And all of a sudden, heaven comes crashing into earth, and you're surrounded by people who are the happiest, most forgiving people you've ever met. Would that be good for you? Would you enjoy that? If you are someone who's stingy and selfish, and you like to hang on to your stuff, because why should I give it? I've earned my stuff. Why should I give it to all these other people? And all of a sudden, heaven crashes into earth, and you're invaded and surrounded by a multitude of people who are the most generous people you've ever met. Pure, unadulterated generosity. Would you enjoy that? Maybe, you're a, maybe you have a little bigotry in you. Maybe you're a little bit racist or a lot racist. And you look at other people who, look, who have different color skin than you or a different income bracket than you or different political views than you and you just kind of keep your distance because you're not so sure. You're kind of suspicious of those people. And all of a sudden, heaven comes to earth and you're seated at the table of the great feast, surrounded by people from every tongue, tribe, and nation who love being together and who love each other, no matter what they look like, would you be comfortable at that table? 
What if you're a little proud and you have some things to boast, out, to boast about? You've accomplished a lot and you're proud of what you've accomplished. And you stand in that. You're self-confident. You know who you are and you assert yourself. And all of a sudden, heaven comes crashing into earth and you're surrounded by a multitude of meek people who have nothing to prove. Would that feel like home to you? That's what I'm asking. Are you ready for this? Do you want this? Do you want heaven to come to earth? If you do, if you want to be like this, if you can look at the, if you can hear this text this morning and say, you know what, I'm not there. I'm not that person yet. Maybe you're way short of that. We all are, right? But you want it. You want that. You want to be that person. God is doing something in your life. He is doing something in your life, and your future is bright. And let me just tell you, this is the last thing I'll say. The one thing you can't do is say, okay, it's a new year. This is the person I want to be, so I'm just going to try to be more meek. I'm going to try to be more humble. I'm going to try to show more compassion. I'm going to try to be more righteous. It doesn't work that way. You know why? Because happiness is coming to God with nothing. And there's only one person who ever lived this way, and it's Jesus Christ. And he gave his life for us on the cross, and when we put our trust in him, and we come to him with nothing, and we say, Jesus, change me. I have nothing, God. Change me. Make me like Jesus. I just want to be your servant. That's it. That's all you have to do, and Jesus will will hear you, and he will begin to make you like this. He will make you new. That's his promise to you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, uh, this great passage of Scripture that seems so out of reach. But we thank you, God, that through the gospel and through faith in the gospel, we know that it is well within our reach. We know, God, that you are changing us to be these people. That wherever we go, that we would be giving people a glimpse of heaven because of what you've done in our hearts. We pray, God, that you would make us people of character, that you would continually change us to be more like Jesus, that you would increase our faith this week as we go out from here. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.